Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hit as my guest. Let's tell you something, people. I started a new side business, my new PR company, Creative Stupidity PR. Now, here's the deal. I have one client so far, uh, Jason Aldean's drummer, Rich Redman. And in just a month and a half, I've placed him on seven podcasts, got him an acting agent out here, got his blue verification on Twitter. And last week, he was on Nashville Today. So if you're looking to get your product known, to get on podcasts, if you're an actor, you want more viability, visibility, whatever the term is, hit me up, cooper at coopertalk.net. I was going to call it Cooper Talk uh, PR, but that's too much Cooper Talk stuff. So it's creative stupidity PR. So if you're looking for something, people, hit me up and I will take care of you. Anyway, we have a great guest. It's funny. My, I had to cancel my guest last week because I basically, I got a last minute booking for a commercial. So I canceled them. And then three hours later, I get a message that says the director cut my scene. So I was screwed. And then I had him booked on Friday and his girlfriend got sick. So we've been going back and forth, but I'm glad to have him on. And, uh, he's, and I got to talk to him about the four octave stuff. We'll go into that. But my, my, my guest is Tony Harnell. How you doing? I'm good, Steve. How are you doing? Good. Good I'm to gl- talk to you. Yeah, I'm glad, glad we got in touch. You worked it out. Yeah. Well, it's <laughs> funny. I, you know, I, I knew of you, and then I saw a picture on Facebook of you with a guy named Reggie Wu, who went to my high school, and you wow. and him and John Karabi were at some concert together or something. Yeah, we did the Monsters of Rock cruise together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I said, I got to hit this guy up. I said, you know, because, you know, he's he's not from Cherry Hill, but he's got a Cherry Hill connection. So it's all good. Yeah, I actually have a really weird Philadelphia connection. Um, I was I moved to New York when I was really young. I, I just fresh out of high school and I finished high school early. So uh, I got my um, diploma from uh, from when I was uh, 16, actually. So I worked for a little bit, and uh, then my mom was an opera singer. She was already living in New York, so my grandparents shipped me out here and um, ended up after going to college for six months, I started singing a lot more, and uh, this guitar player heard me, and all of a sudden I found myself in a professional band at 17 down in Philadelphia working four or five nights a week, and that's kind of where I, you know, started performing for the first time and uh just so happened to be down there so i i started i cut my teeth so to speak on the philadelphia south jersey rock circuit and um so go i go very far back with guys like karabi and reggie Wu and uh uh the, the cinderella guys tom tom Kiefer and all these people you know just from those days you know of starting out down there so it's kind of a weird um weird connection but yeah reggie and i go way back to probably 1980 or 82 or something yeah well, well, that's funny because we're around the same age uh what was the band well no one probably not anything you, you'd heard of but uh the first one that i joined when i went down there was called castleton and uh that was um with a guy named mark esky who went on to form a band called network and the, the drummer was um Bob Duhame, who went on to be, now he's in a band, I think, called Stone, and but he had been kicking around the circuit in a bunch of different bands, and then we did another band together down there called Precious Metal, and another one, I think, even after that, and we did, you know, the Freddie Baker circuit, and we did all that stuff down there, so um, none of them really 
took off in a big way, but uh, it led to other things, and I got a lot out of it, you know, by, by being a kid playing four nights a week and playing a lot of, you know, three sets a night uh, was very, very good for me. So I took that with me back to New York and kept going. <laughs> now, now you were born in San Diego, and now and yeah. you, you said your mom was an opera singer. So did you, yeah. did you know at a young, I mean, how did you find out you could sing? And I did some research, Jimmy, because... People have said about you a four octave voice, which there's. You look at the list of the people who have it. There's not a lot who have it who are professional singers. But how did you know you could sing? And was it because your mom was an opera singer? Did you always want to sing as a kid, or was it just you sang one time in school and everyone went, "Holy crap, that kid's got pipes"? <laughs> I mean, how did you parlay into the singing? I don't know. You know, uh, I was I was always interested in music, and my mom, thankfully, uh, not only was I exposed to opera which was great. Uh, now I look back on it and, and you know, I, I might've actually hated it at the time, but I, I think it was really good for me to be exposed to, to classical music to that, you know, at that level. But she was a big pop music fan and folk music. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, the sixties and early seventies and mid seventies. And so she was, uh, a lot of what was being played in the house was not opera. So if she wasn't warming up or rehearsing or playing piano and singing and, you know, practicing for, for a new opera that she was doing, all, all I heard was, you know, the Beatles, uh, you know, Beatles, Stones, um, you know, folk music, uh, you know, uh, Judy Collins and, and, and Seals and Crofts. And I mean, I can just go on and on and on, just Bob Dylan and uh, Jimi Hendrix. My aunt was a little younger. My aunt was almost two years younger, so she'd be coming over with the Zeppelin records and the Creedence Clearwater and the and the Three Dog Night stuff, you know. But uh, I got I got a taste of all this stuff, and and so from from a young age, it was uh, you know constantly being played, and that that was a big thing for me. And then of course the radio, which. You know, back then the radio radio was awesome until not very long ago. I mean, it, it's still great in a different way. It's just that you know you could get into a car and it was just so great. So you know, um, it's, it's funny yeah. you said about the radio is because I've noticed this too that you're you're right. Radio used to be amazing, but now living in LA and this is the God's honest truth. Sometimes I feel like classic rock, which used to be, you know, as you say back in the day was across the board now and this is no lie and people will agree with me when i post it and tweet about it in la at any moment at time and that's a little exaggeration you can switch a station you'll either hear acdc and guns and roses both bands i love but yeah. it's like they just constantly play it there used to be so much variety in radio when we were younger that you could sit there and you could hear you know it wasn't like okay i'm gonna hear queen in the next hour you know it'd be like okay yeah. i'm gonna hear as you said, you know, all these different bands, you're like, holy crap, I can listen, I can hear the kinks, you know? Well, yeah, well, that was, that's the thing, I mean, I can hear a song, uh, you know, someone's playing a classic rock station or something, and I'm in, I'm in a car, because I, I don't listen to the radio unless I'm in a car, I don't, I don't turn it on at home, I, um, so it's always in a car, uh, and, if I'm driving or someone else is driving it, you know, you know, I'm sure I'm not alone when I say this, a song will pop on, it could be any kind of song, and you, for me, I immediately get a memory. It's it's usually a very distinct memory of some kind associated with a particular track. So I remember when I was a kid and I first started to drive, that's when I really started to, uh, you know, absorb the radio even more than ever before. Um, 
because I was driving, you know, so I was 16 years old, my first car, and the radio was on constantly. I could hear uh, everything from a, uh, you know, Steely Dan track, you know, like Peg or something would come on, and then in the next instant it might be Van Halen, and then, you know, after that it might be Cheap Trick, or then maybe uh, the Little River Band, you know, reminiscing, you know, and all these great 70s tracks would come on, and... Um, or an Elton John song. And, and so there are very, very funny moments where a song will pop up. And uh, I have a very, very specific memory of turning a corner, you know, at a beach somewhere in San Diego at, at the moment that that song was on. It must have been just like that, you know. So I, I got off the beaten path there a little bit with your question. But I think that, you know, growing up the way that I did um, and being exposed to music and and film and art uh, from a young age, I just absorbed it uh, so deeply. And then I, I had idols from a very young age. And I remember very clearly um, being that uh, Glenn Campbell became such a big star when I was very young and very impressionable. He had a TV show called the Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour. And uh, I just flipped out over him. I, I just, for whatever reason, at four or five or six years old, it was like he was he was everything to me. He was this great singer. I thought he looked cool. He played guitar amazingly well. Um, to me, I wasn't into country music, and I didn't see him really as a country artist. I just kind of saw him as some kind of crossover thing that had a you know guy with a great voice. And I started singing his songs a lot. And I had every record, every time we went to the record store or anywhere they sold records, I wanted a Glen Campbell record. So I had every album, and I, and I absorbed those songs like really like a sponge and would sing them. And so my grandmother and my mom noticed that I could sing on, on, you know, on key, and uh, they started to invite people over, and they'd make me sing at parties and get-togethers and different things like that. So... He was kind of the first one that I like just absolutely would sit for hours and listen to. And I don't know any kid that's like five or six years old that just sits and listens to records and absorbs music the way that I did at such a young age. And that's what I was doing. If I wasn't out playing, which I was a lot um, with my friends, I was inside absorbing music. I was absorbing this stuff and I didn't even know what I was doing. I didn't have any aspirations really of, yeah, I, I took some guitar lessons and, and so forth. But it wasn't like at five years old, everyone was going, this kid's going to be a singer. It was none of that going on. It was just, oh, look, he's, he's got some talent, you know. Um, but everybody in my family sang. My mom sang, my aunt sang, my grandmother sang, my dad played piano. Uh, and he was a photographer. He just played for fun. So to me, singing and singing well, so they told me, was not any great accomplishment i didn't see it as anything other than well okay so i can sing my mom can sing i guess we can all sing so big deal you know <laughs> um it wasn't until later uh that i guess when i was uh, you know more in in my uh again in my driving early driving years and driving my car around that i had my first eight track player and i started listening to rock hard rock and Never. metal and Remember A-Tracks? Oh, my God. I remember the thing that, oh, pissed, yeah. that pissed me off about A-Tracks was my brother had a Camaro. And he had, I know he had Billy Joel, The Stranger, Steely Dan, and Boston, I believe, on A-Track. And the only thing, A-Tracks were great. But what always pissed me off was, like, you'd be listening to a song, and you'd be getting into it. And then some songs, they, they would switch in the middle of the track. 
You oh, you know, I kind of do vaguely. I I just what I remember more than that used to upset me more than that would be pulling the thing out and having tape stick inside. <laughs> the player, you know, yeah, it's not like the this big, it's not like the cassette when you use the pencil and the eraser to twist it. The A track, you're screwed. Yeah, once that was done, you were done, and you had to go get a new one. But um, but no, my first eight tracks were things like you know Judas Priest, Stained Class, and twenty and twenty one twelve by Rush, and you know. Uh, you know, because that's just when I happened to get my first car, so that's what I went and bought. But um, when once I started getting into that stuff, you know, I surfed a lot and I skateboarded a lot. I was I was a professional skateboarder when I was uh, fourteen and fifteen years old, and uh, so I, I, most of my time was spent surfing and skateboarding. So on the way to the beach or on the way to the skate park or wherever I was going, I had a motorcycle as well. I would be blasting this stuff and singing i would just automatically start singing to it and i just started getting better and better i kind of sensed that i was singing well but i wasn't sure until uh i don't remember exactly when it was but at some point along the way somebody noticed and people started to comment about it and i thought well this is you know interesting and and then the final story I'll tell you, which is really uh, really when it all kind of came together, was when I moved to New York finally, um, my dad drove my car out, uh, and I flew out, and my surfboard was in the back of the car, and I thought, well, I'll try to continue this weird lifestyle somehow in New York and find a beach, and, you know. Um, <laughs> but I moved to Astoria, Queens, which is a, a strange place to live um, when you've been living on the beach and, in, in, uh, or, you know, surfing in San Diego your whole life, and... Um, driving my car around and I'm, I'm screaming to Judas Priest and, and Zeppelin and all this kind of stuff. And one day I'm, I'm at a stop sign and these two long haired guys dressed in black leather, um, you know, start running towards my car. They go, stop, stop. And I'm going, Oh my God, dude, I'm going to get killed right now. I'm dead. <laughs> you know, I'm locking the door, I'm rolling the window up, you know, and they're like, no, 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 no. Like, we're, it's fine. It's fine. I'm like, uh, I'm like, okay, what, what? And they're like, are you the guy that's been driving through the neighborhood singing? And I'm like, oh, you, you heard me? Like, you can hear me? Because it was summertime. You know, I guess my windows were down sometimes. Um, yeah, we heard you. We've been looking for you. So that led to, can you come rehearse with us on Saturday? And, you know, there'll be beer there and, you know, whatever whatever the story was. And I had never been in a rehearsal room before. Never, you know, never played, had never played with a band or anything. So I thought, yeah, that'll be fun. You know, why not? So I went down and I did that. And that was... Uh, that was the moment where everything changed. I was in. I had a scholarship. I was in. I was in college at seventeen. I had a full photography scholarship. That's what I was going to do. Follow my dad's footsteps and and be a photographer. And um, that one rehearsal just uh, changed the whole path. <laughs> and little by little, uh, as I went through and, and eventually joined that band, uh, didn't stay in it for very long because. Um, when I realized that's what I wanted to do, I went to my college and said, I got to get out of here and do music. And uh, so I quickly just started to get better and better. And I just went from band to band to band and just kept looking for better and better bands. And um, probably spent about three years from 17 until 21. I would guess I was in about 15 different bands in that short period of time, just because if a better band came along, I would jump to that one because I wanted to just get better and better myself, and I wanted to, to to be around musicians that were better than me. 
what do you and, th- uh, absorb that. What do you think made you want to do that? Because, you know, at 17 and 20, you know, at that age, you know, I was in Laziness. college. No, I mean, no, but no, you seem, no, you seem to know what you wanted. I mean, most people, well, most people be like, hey man, I'm in a band. I'm, I'm 18. Yeah. I'm getting beer. Yeah. This is cool as shit. What do you think no. made you just want to? To get that drive, it was—it's like an—was it an inherent drive? Did it come from your parents or? No, I, I, you know, it's funny. I, I, I was so oblivious to, um, you know, a lot of people. It's so typical and cliche that people go, "I got in it. I got into it for the chicks and for the, you know, for the, for the all that stuff." And I had, I, I was all about the music. To me, it was like, it was lazy. I, I say a little bit. It was laziness, and what I mean by that is, I, I kind of looked at photography. And I looked at that and I went, well, everybody's responding to my voice and I don't even know what I'm doing, but everyone's freaking out and saying, oh my God, like you got to hear this guy, this guy is amazing. And I'm going, wow, okay, well, <clears throat> you know, I'm getting instant adulation and gratification for something that I've just been kind of doing as a hobby in my car for the past, like, you know, f- couple of years. And, um, well, this seems easier, <laughs> you know? So I thought, well, it wasn't easier, you know, not really, but in my mind, I just thought, well, I'm getting all this attention for something that I, um, that seems to be really easy for me to do. So why don't I just jump over and do that? Because photography is not an easy profession either. Um, so if I'm going to be in the arts, maybe I should choose something that people are already telling me I'm really good at, you know? So that was really my reasoning behind it. And then as far as, uh, the drive, well, once I realized that I loved it as much as I did, and I really did, and it was for me, again, all about the music. I mean, I, I just lived and breathed that if I wasn't rehearsing, I was writing, I was, or I was listening to music. Everything that I did, every moment of every day was absorbing, listening, learning, rehearsing, writing, lyrics just i had notebooks and notebooks i i still have them i have tons of notebooks with just you know tons of lyrics in them and um so everything that i did i even worked at a record store everything i did had to revolve around you know the music so um i don't know where the drive came from there was just this urgency of i've got to do this and i've got to get i've got to be the best and i don't even know what that means because now i look at music and i say well it's kind of weird. It's a weird thing to think, but I think coming from an athletic background, like I did with surfing and skateboarding, I think I, in my mind, I was thinking, I have to be the best. I want to be the best at this, and uh, um, and so I guess that that was part of the drive. Now I realize that when it comes to art and music, there isn't really a best or a worst. It's really just a matter of you you do your thing and other people do their thing, and it's different. It's not better or worse. It's just different. And, some people think uh, that uh, you know Rod Stewart or who I happen to love, or or uh, or Mick Jagger are the best singers in the world, and other people think Rob Halford and Steve Perry are the best singers in the world. And so, what I learned later in life was that you know there is really no best. But that was my drive. My drive was go 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 and get there as quickly as you can. And I don't even know why. I was young, so I didn't really have um, any understanding yet of. Uh, the need for uh, it wasn't really. Of course, I wanted to make a lot of money, and I wanted to be successful, and I wanted to be uh, to do well, and I wanted to make my parents proud and all that stuff. But I just wanted to uh, to get there and get the prize. So I guess I just worked so hard in those three or four years from seventeen to twenty one when the TNT thing came along, uh, and I'm probably getting ahead of you on, on questions here, but. 
um, it was just kind of a uh, how that developed and fell together was also very strange, and you can ask me about that because I've been talking for a half hour. Oh no, that's fine. No, I, I want to ask about TNT, but before I do, because I know that's it's because oh, I read your bio, you know, you, you're found, and I just think it's 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 something that you know you usually don't hear a guy in New York hey, join a band in Norway. But I, I got to ask you because it said about the. Can you explain the four octave and how did how did you how do you find out? Is there like a test? Like sets you before because you know as I said I don't know if, dude I don't know if I have four octaves well, I that's mean, what it says never, that's what it says everywhere about you it says you have four octaves I know but range. I mean people throw that out there about everybody anybody that can sing high notes or low notes that just seems to be the number they choose you know and I've never I don't I don't recall when I started taking voice lessons sitting down with my voice teacher saying okay. Look, how many octaves can I sing? You know, to my right. uh, and, and let's let's see what my lowest note is and what my I I never really cared or thought about that. That was something that other people were you know seemed to be more into than me. Was um, all I wanted to do was be really good. And the reason that I that I, that I gravitated towards range was probably that um, when I first heard guys like Robert Rob Halford or, or Ronnie James Dio or uh, or or Getty Lee. It was just very striking to me that, you know, these guys were able to do all of this stuff with their voices. And, and maybe there was a connection to the opera thing with my mom. And maybe there was a connection to uh, the athleticism of it. Because if you think about that kind of singing, it's very it's very connected to opera. I mean, opera is extreme singing. And, and heavy rock singing is very extreme singing. And uh, I think in my mind someplace, I thought, well, if I could do it that way, you know, if I could sing like Robert Plant or, you know, like, you know, Rob Halford or one of these guys, then it's worth doing. Like in my young brain, I felt like, well, if I could just sing like an average dude and just be like another one of these normal pop singers with maybe a nice voice or something, that's okay and all. But if I could be this crazy, wild thing, if I could do something crazy with my voice, then that would be worth pursuing, I guess, you know. Um, so I remember one day, I was trying to break through on my own before I ever went for lessons. And I was singing to, I think, a, a Zeppelin song. And I just, something popped open. And I listened so intently because that's what I said. I was listening a lot. And I did. I, that's how I learned to do everything that I do. And it was watching and learning and uh, watching and listening. And I tell people I work with and mentor whenever they allow me to do so, that listening intently uh, and learning how to listen in a way that I didn't know I was doing, it's just something I did naturally, is what got me, got my voice to open up, is I listened so closely and carefully to what these guys were doing that somehow I was able to figure out how to take my voice from from what it was, where it would stop to pass that point and figure out how to use my entire range. And the day it happened, I was in my mom's apartment in, in Queens and it popped open and I went, oh my God, I figured it out. And... I just kept doing it. I think I did it for four hours until until I couldn't speak anymore. But I never forgot how to do it after that. I just every day I would I would go back and check again and go, yeah, that's how I do it. That's how you do it, you know. And and it just got better and better from there until eventually I did go for lessons when I was about eighteen and uh, and figured out what I was doing um, and why and how and all that kind of stuff. But I, I don't think about things like range and stuff. I mean, I love that I have it. And I know people are impressed by it, and it makes people go, ooh and ah. But for me, the best thing about having those notes is for expression. 
it, it's just another it gives you another avenue to express um, the art in a way that you couldn't do maybe if you had a lower register um, but you know in saying that some of my favorite singers don't have big ranges and they've learned how to express themselves in very emotional deep ways maybe because of their limitations you know so you you also have those kinds of singers who uh who have big ranges that are really boring to listen to because they've got so much range that all they're doing is being rangy all the time right and then there's just no 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 vibe or emotion or or soul coming through and uh and that's that's also an issue. So I always tried to take both and have as much soul as I could while using the notes, if that makes any sense. So now, how but, did TNT come about? Because you know you mentioned that. Now that was band. I mean, you were you were in New York. I believe it was 1984. <clears throat> uh, yep, that was the year. And yeah. so, so what happened? What was and and what was that like? And you're sitting there because, as you said, you're jumping from band to band, and basically, yeah. it's you know, as when I used to do stand up comedy. We call it. It's stage time. It's you're perfecting your craft. You know, you're you're yeah. you're moving up. You know, and doing things. So how did how did this event happen? And it and overall, it changed your life. Well, I I had gone through a succession of bands um, very quickly. Uh, when I left Philadelphia, I came back to New York, and I immediately got right on the horse and uh, uh, started to uh, jump into bands. Um, and, and I actually joined a band. <laughs> I actually joined a band once um, that I really didn't think was a good band on purpose because they were playing clubs I wanted to be seen in. So I felt that they were just good enough that I wouldn't look stupid, but maybe, just maybe, I'd get seen, okay. you know, by the right by the right people. And that's that's how I look back on it. And I go, how was I so smart then, and how am I so dumb now? You know, <laughs> because, <laughs> but. Uh, but but I would do things like that, and um, I won't mention the band because they were really nice guys, and that it that absolutely worked. The strategy totally worked. Um, I got from that band. We played all the their sleeves and um, Lamore and uh, all these great clubs. And from that gig, I got recruited into a band called the Jackals, and. Uh, that band included Johnny Tempesta, who's now you know with the Cult, and who was in uh, in White Zombie and Rob Zombie uh, for years, and uh, Testament, and um, you know, he he went on to do very well. So he was in that band. I got recruited into that band. A great guitar player, a great bass player, and just a really good, solid metal band out of the Bronx. And we started to play uh, a lot on weekends, uh, rehearsed quite a bit. We all had, you know, various jobs you have when you're 19, 20, 21 years old, you know, uh, record stores, messenger jobs, whatever we were doing. Um, and uh, one night, well, we started to play every Friday night at this venue up in the Bronx and we'd start to draw. Uh, we were drawing like a thousand people. Nowadays, I mean, there are bands I know that have sold millions of records that have hard, a hard time drawing a thousand people to, you know, to a venue. So... We started thinking we were pretty hot shit, you know, and, uh, you know, we were doing mostly covers. We probably did about two or three originals, and we were building up that, you know, that arsenal and writing more songs and demoing and stuff, but, uh, and we had some, started to get some label interest, and uh, there was a guy at Columbia that was interested in the band, and he was kind of courting us and uh, taking us out to dinner and, you know, fancy limousine nights and funny things like that were starting to happen. 
Well, one night we played Metal Night at the old Studio 54. Uh, it was on a Wednesday night, and uh, these two guys come backstage after the show. One of them was Mike Barney, who you're probably aware of, and the other guy was uh, just a local manager in Long Island who was working with this Norwegian band called TNT. And they came backstage with a tape. One side was uh, their new record, Just Music. And the other side was the new record with the singer they were firing. And the offer was, here's the tape, listen to side one and side two. If you like it, you're free to change things and do what you want to adjust the music to your voice. Um, but you got to be in Norway um, within like a week or something. It was like a real quick deal, like make a decision and go. So I went went home and I was living with my bass player and I went home and, and he's like, and I was like, I didn't want to listen to it because he was, you know, we were in a band together and we lived together and he goes, it's like two and two or three in the morning. He goes, you going to listen to that thing or what? You know, so. I put it on and Seven Seas comes blasting out of the speakers with Ronnie's beautiful sounding guitar. And I, in my brain, I'm just going, okay, this is exactly the kind of band that I want to be in and exactly what I've been looking for. Um, what am I going to do? So I didn't say anything. And then, of course, you know, my, ba my buddy, my bass player said, well, what are you going to do? And I go, well, it sounds pretty good. He goes, yeah, it sounds good. He's, he goes, he's like, get your ass over to Norway. So he was cool enough to say that. And... The band only had a deal there, though. They had a deal with a huge label. You know, they were on, uh, you know, Polygram at the time, which is now Universal, but only in Norway. So in my mind, I thought, well, I'll go do the record, and it'll be good for my band in New York. So I'll, I'll do the album. I'll come back. I said, guys, don't worry. I'll, I'll go do the album. It'll get us some attention. I'll come back, and we'll, we'll keep going. Well, we finished, we finished Nights of the New Thunder, which is what I went over there to do. I did most of the vocals in a week. I was doing about two songs a day. Uh, I spent about four days touching things up and rewriting things to fit my voice and so forth and, and changing some things I changed a lot, some things I didn't change much at all. And and then uh, they mixed it, and the guy at the label in Norway just started sending the record out to his affiliates around Europe and around the world, and little by within a month, all of a sudden it was coming out in Holland, and then it was coming out in Germany, and then it was being released in Japan, and it was just like one thing after another. And sometime around the end of the year of 84, or the beginning of 85, I can't remember exactly when it was, we get this big phone call from the head of A&R in New York City at, at uh, Universal, at Mercury Records, and he wants to sign the band for a three-album deal. And that's kind of how it happened. And, of course, uh, when, when things started to blow up, I, I never went back to, to the Jackals, obviously. Um, and we just started touring. And, uh, and, and then we got signed by Doc McGee. And we were the third band on his roster after Motley Crue and Bon Jovi. It was uh, the three of us, three bands that he had. And, uh, of course, we didn't get much attention from him because the other two were doing so well. So the, the relationship didn't last long, but, uh, but but that's how we got started, and that's when we were basically on our way. And uh, well, that's the quick story told, I guess, in a very as, as short as I could tell it. <laughs> what, what, what was it like, though? Okay, so you're it was the metal scene was blowing up in L.A., but you're over in Norway. Did you? Yeah. Did you, and, and it's not like now where there's the internet and you can get you know and hold everything. Did you know that the metal scene was blowing up over in the States? And, and what was it like when well, you first moved to Norway? Well, I did. 
but I, but I, I was kind of paying attention. I mean, it was interesting because when Motley Crue first came out with that first record with, uh, with that iconic cover of, uh, you know, uh, Vince, Vince's torso with his, you know, with the belt and the whole thing. And, you know, uh, I, my first thought was, wow, they look like all the bands I was in in Philadelphia, whether, you know, all of us were dressing that way in 1980, 79 and 80 and 81, we all had black hair and makeup and eyeliner and, and we, we all looked exactly like Motley Crue. I mean, not exactly, but I mean, that was basically the look we had. We were all very glammy, tons of makeup, and we'd go out like that. We'd go to the mall that way, you know. Um, I knew something was happening. Um, I'm guessing that if TNT didn't happen when it did, that I was 21 years old, um, I'm probably, I'm pretty sure my next move, if the Jackals didn't get signed within the next, you know, six months or, or less, I'm pretty sure my next move would have been to go back to California. I, 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 I'm just guessing that would have been what I would have done. And, um, and I don't say this in a cocky way, I'm pretty certain that had I done that, I would have found something out there that would have worked. Um, and maybe would have been even more successful for me than, than TNT. And I, I love TNT. I love what we've achieved, and I'm proud of it, proud of all the records. But let's face it, we never really broke through outside of Japan and Norway, where we were huge. We never really broke through, uh, you know, in America the way that, the way I would have liked to have seen us break through. We, we came close. Uh, and I have a lot of stories I can tell and reasons I can say about why it didn't you know, kick up to the next level, and some of that has to do with the band, some of it has to do with management, some of it has to do with the label, but um, we were right on the edge, <laughs> it was real close, and uh, it just didn't quite get there, but... Well, um, well give me you your know, insight yeah. on why that didn't happen, because I know, you know, as, as I was reading, it's like, overseas, you're right, you guys sold more, like, more than the Michael Jackson CDs, like, you, you guys, you guys were like, in, in Scandinavia, Norway, you were giant, I mean, what's that like to be... You, I mean, you were the rock stars of that area, and because you were fr not you, but the rest of the band was from that area, it probably escalated a lot. What's it like to feel that kind of you know popularity in a country that's not known for music? I mean, it must have changed your life, and just I mean, you must have lost a lot of privacy. But it is, but that's but that's the funny thing. It is known for music, and I didn't know that till I got there. What a big music scene there was in Scandinavia, because when I got there. All of a sudden, I'm exposed to Europe. Oh, there's this great, incredible Swedish band called Europe, you know, and and there's um, you know, there's there's all this there's there's all of these bands, and they're in Norway, they're in Sweden, they're in Denmark, and I'm getting turned on to all this music, and I'm going, wow, what a bunch of amazing bands there are over here. Ingve Malmsteen was already on his well, you know, well on his way, um, so. And Finland had, you know, Hanoi Rocks and some other bands up there, too. So I, I actually came to learn that there was a giant music scene over there. Germany, of course. Uh, I, a lot of my favorite bands were German, except um, Scorpions, you know. Uh, and, of course, England, you know, always England. But, uh, but no, Scandinavia, I was blown away. I was like, wow, like there are so many musicians here and they're so good. So many good ones in one in one small place, you know. Um, Ronnie is a great example of a kid who grew up, uh, you know, very strict schooling, 
where you know if you're going to be in music you got to study classical music you got to learn everything so when you when you get these musicians over there they really know their stuff you know they're they've been studying classical music they were you know beaten over the hand with a stick you know you play your piano and you learn those chords and you learn he you, you know and uh ronnie's got that background and that's why when you listen to tnt it may sound to some people like cheesy simple pop music but if you dig in a little bit deeper if you're a musician or if you have a good ear you hear a lot of things going on between he and i and the melodic stuff that's going on with the chord structures and the arrangements and the way that the melodies fit over the chords and into the chords, which I'm not sure any other combination of singer and song, uh, singer and guitar player could have could have done. Is it, is it amazing to everybody? No. I mean, are they the greatest songs in the world? Maybe not, but it's definitely unique. And it's uh, probably a combination of my upbringing in america with american music and opera uh combined with his uh you know european classical um hard rock upbringing over there whereas his favorite bands were deep purple and rainbow and and you know that kind of stuff more the classical type of hard rock my favorite bands were more you know zeppelin and uh and queen and, and stuff but but we meet in a lot of places, both of us love Queen. Both of us love the Beatles, you know, and uh, Journey, and uh, and he really loves a lot of the American bands like Journey and Foreigner and uh, uh, Aerosmith and and uh, you know Boston and stuff like that. So uh, his love of that kind of American music and my love for the European stuff is what what really brought us together uh, and made the whole thing work. What what do you why do you think? the popularity in Japan. And I've heard Japan fans are yeah. insane. Like Carmine Apice yeah. was on and he said, he's huge. And so many artists are huge in Japan and the, and the people it's a cliche, know all the lyrics. Right? It's a funny yeah, cliche, it's, yeah. But it's true though. What do you think that made you guys and what was it like playing in Japan? What kind of crowds would you play to in Japan? Oh my God. Well, the funny thing about it was we were kind of like, what's going to happen with intuition? Because it was the follow-up to Tell No Tales. Tell No Tales was like, you know, the big stepping stone album in America and, and in, it was number one in Norway for, in fact, there's a, you can go back in time and look at charts uh, nowadays with the internet. You can actually look at the year 1987 and you can see the Norwegian pop chart. Um, and you can see us dancing, uh, between number one and number two, number three. And we're kind of going up and down for about, I don't know how many weeks it was. It might've been a six to eight week period. And we're moving back and forth with Michael Jackson and uh, a couple other things that were big at the time. Mostly it was Michael's album, and uh, I think it was bad. And it was like TNT would be number one, and then the next week he'd be number one, and then we'd be number one again. Um, and 10,000 Lovers was also number one in Norway. So, uh, sorry, I, I totally lost your question there. Say that, oh, what was it like to, in Japan? So the thing about Japan is we, we felt like we had to follow up Tell No Tales with something even bigger. We needed to get now. We needed to make it big in the States. We needed to. We almost got there with Tell No Tales, you know, in the U.S. Um, my You said elaborate on that. My feeling is if the label had put out one of the ballads, if we had, if we had released, uh, 
maybe Northern Lights as a, as a single and a video, or uh, that, that's the one I really think would have done it. And, and, and then we probably would have had a gold or platinum album in the U.S. and everything would have changed. But they, instead, they took us off the road and, and put us back in the studio. So that's what we did, and we thought, well, this is the, this is this is the one that's going to really matter now, you know, is intuition. So we we changed everything. Uh, our producer got digital tape. Um, we were the only, as far as I've I've been told, the second band after Def Leppard to record an album on dig, on digital tape. I think they did Hysteria digitally, and we were doing intuition intuition dig, digitally around the same time uh, frame as they were doing that one. So. Uh, what happened was we, we came over to the U.S., did exactly what we did the year before, started in California, made a video for Tonight I'm Falling, uh, sorry, Intuition, made a video for Intuition, and then um, started our first headlining tour of uh, large clubs and small theaters. And um, we started at the Palace in L.A., and, and they told us we were the first hard rock band to sell it out. And um, the whole tour across the U.S. was sold out, in places that were anywhere from, I guess, I don't know, on the small end, maybe 750, and on the high end, maybe two or 3,000. There was a couple places on the East Coast that I know uh, one of them was about 3,000 people. And everywhere we were breaking attendance records, and it, it seemed like everything was going the right way, and the next natural step would have been to jump, jump on an arena tour again and open up for somebody like we had done in 87. Well... Somewhere around the uh, the end of the tour in America, we got a call from our, our manager saying, well, your album is blowing up in Japan, and it's not even on the rock charts, it's on the pop charts. It's like top 10 on the pop charts in Japan, and we're going, oh my God. So they put a tour on sale in places that were between, I guess, five to, uh, between 5,000 to 7,500 people uh, per, per venue. Uh, Tokyo, I think we did two nights in a row. And the tour sold out in 30 minutes. Oh, wow. And it was, I think it was about seven or eight shows. And it sold out in 30 minutes. And so we were like, wow, this is crazy, you know. So we get there and we get out, we, we, we come off the airplane and there's hundreds of kids at the airport. And we're just like, okay, this is really bizarre, you know. Um, and we thought, good, okay, finally, it, it's, something's happening. You know, it gave us a little, it gave us a kick in the ass. Um, and then we left Japan and it just kind of fell apart. It just started to fall apart. Um, the label in the U.S. wasn't happy. The album sold just as well as it did uh, the previous album had done, but they obviously wanted it to do better. They, they, they weren't really behind it. I think we came back and did one more video for Tonight I'm Falling and then they kind of lost uh, their faith in the band. So we, um, our manager, very, very smartly put a new deal together um, quietly with Atlantic Records, and we uh, uh, we, we orchestrated um, leaving Mercury on a Friday and signing with Atlantic the following Monday. <laughs> so we had a new lease on life there, and uh, we we unfortunately made a big mistake um, with the Atlantic album and took way too long to make it with the wrong producer. Uh, didn't come out until 92. We started recording in 1990. Uh, by that time, Nirvana had come out uh, or came out soon after our record or just beforehand, and we were, we were just too late. Had we made the record quickly and efficiently and got it out by 90 or 91, we would have beat the grunge thing by a little bit and probably had a hit on, on that 
Atlantic album because we had a couple of, uh, I think, re really good songs on that album and maybe would have had a, another shot. And then we went to Japan and we had a huge tour again in 92. And then we came home and we and that's when we sort of called it called it a day for the first time because we've called it a day a few times. Right. <laughs> we, we've gotten back together each time. But, Was it, yeah. what, did you call it a day? Is it, is it out of frustration sometimes? Because... You know, you're right on the precipice of blowing up, and you—it's not like it's not like you're a band that couldn't draw. You're playing venues, you've made albums, you've had success, but you yeah. never took that next step. Is it just something that after a while you just get frustrated and you go, you know what? Maybe we should cool it off for a while. I think we all were. I think all of us were frustrated. I think our egos were out of control. I think that we had we had gotten so big in a couple of markets that we had delusions of grandeur about who we were and how much success we really had. Of course, me being excuse me uh, being American, I was very frustrated about the lack of success over here. So for me, it was kind of, it was like I could go to a rock club; everyone knew who I was in the, in the U.S., but. I suppose that fed into my my problem a little bit, you know, was I'd walk in and get in for free everywhere and everybody would be buying me drinks. So I guess I thought, well, I am I am a rock star, but I wasn't a rock star at all. But not over here. Um, it was it was a huge mistake because what the smart bands did and I can name rattle off quite a few is they said, OK, fine. The music has died everywhere but but Japan in Europe. So what they did is they just they just said screw it and they closed it down over here and they put all their energy and their focus and attention on Europe and Japan. And I swear to you had we been smart enough or had good enough management or direction from somebody to say guys this is what we should do. Let's just put all of our eggs into Japan and really just keep going and build up that market like crazy and play you know continue in europe and do you know do this and that do what we can we would have been millionaires and i say that without any hesitation because i know people who did it ingve malmsteen was smart enough to focus a hundred percent on japan and he was getting million dollar record deals and selling out bigger and bigger places so did mr big and uh, a handful of other bands came out of nowhere uh, from Scandinavia and went to Japan and became huge there, like Royal Hunt. And uh, there's a few other bands I can think of that really meant nothing outside of Japan, but they took advantage of the fact that the, J the Japanese audience, they were just getting started with this stuff. As America was winding down, they were like nuts. They were like, come on, let's go. And we could have been... We were poised, and they loved us so much that we could have literally been like the queen of Japan or something, you know, and uh, we just didn't have good direction, we weren't being given good advice, and we were all so frustrated that we didn't see the potential of how much money we could have made and how well we could have done by simply focusing on that market. And, you know, the guys that did it, they were there for maybe a couple months, not even, maybe one or two months a year. And they'd get these big record deals, it, you know. So they were they were they were really spending just very little time, and they were surviving. And they were also building up markets like Germany, 
So you had bands like Man of War that was over in Germany when the whole thing died, just making tons of money as all these new rock festivals were starting to, to be developed um, in the 90s. Uh, all these new uh, you know, things were happening. So we could have done all that. And instead, we, we just said, oh, screw it, you know, and we went our separate ways and let our egos get the best of us and kind of uh, dumped something that could have been really amazing because Queen, Queen did the same thing. You know, they were smart enough when, they, when their popularity waned in the U.S. They, um, in the 80s, they, they started building up uh, Europe again and they built up South America and Japan and said, you know what, uh, if America's not happening, then we won't go there for a while. We'll wait until it is again, and we'll go other places, you know, so, live and learn. <laughs> now, now you yeah. got, you guys broke up, you got back, you broke up, you got back, now you're, now it's your 30th anniversary tour coming up, or? Yeah, we've already started it in January, everything was sold out over in uh, Norway, which we, honestly, people say, oh, well, of course it was, but it's, it's not really like that, and it's, uh, believe me, it's not easy to sell out anywhere, and, yeah, they weren't giant places. They were, you know, mostly thousand to, I think the biggest one was 1,400 people. Um, but uh, I hate to say it, but like I said earlier in this conversation, it's hard for anybody to get that many people to show up and pay good money, you know, to, to get into a concert. And believe me, ticket prices are very high over there. So uh, I feel really proud because we've, we've toured there two, you know, two years ago, well, three years ago. 2014, we did a pretty extensive tour in Norway, and not every show was sold out. Most of them were, not everyone. Um, so it doesn't always happen, and it's not always automatic. So I was worried. I'm like, is it going you know, to go well this time? Are people going to still care? You know, uh, I was deathly afraid of half-filled venues. And so to get over there and 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 you know, really see the fans come out in droves to see us and then also play well and get a good good buzz going on the band again was 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 really wonderful. So what we're doing now is we started recording our album. We started writing, I should say, in May. And then we started to kind of record little by little uh, towards the end of the year. And uh, we did that tour to warm up for the Monsters of Rock cruise, which the band unfortunately didn't end up making because our guitar player got so sick he couldn't make it over Ronnie. so um so now we're back to recording so we're going to spend uh, march and april trying to wrap up this new album and then we hit the road again in may and it looks like we're gonna uh film fill up the year uh pretty much from may to, uh, throughout the end of the year that's our goal anyway doing we'll do a lot of festival uh festivals over there um and, uh, and and a lot of our own shows. People ask me, and I'll because I know this is probably coming anyway. When are we coming to the states? Um, it's a very difficult thing to explain to people, but it's not for lack of trying. We we we've reached out to several agents, and we've got some strategies put in place to do it properly. We've got you know uh, f uh, between the band, which is five people including our keyboard player and our crew, which is uh, our, our, even, our, even our small crew is three people. So that's eight people that we've got to minimally, usually it ends up being more, but minimally eight people we've got to carry around the world. And uh, it's, not, 
it's not logistically as easy as you might think. And even though we've got more fans in America, believe it or not, than we do any place else in the world, they're spread out. So what we've got to try to figure out very strategically with a good agent is when we do come over, where are we going to play? What markets are we going to focus on first to kind of rebuild this thing over here? And uh, do we do festivals and only festivals or do we do both? Do we do some festivals and do our own shows? You know, I mean, so we're trying to figure all that out. We, we wanted to get over here this year, but I have a feeling 2018 is going to be uh, when we finally get back over here and do a proper, some proper shows. I want to ask you also, okay, so now you're, you're working on new material. You're recording. Yep. You guys have yep. been together for so long. You've broken up. You've gotten back. You've broken up. <clears throat> How does your songwriting style change? And does that come into your writing that you've had, you know, frustrations? Does that all come into the writing or is it just the same old, you're writing from the same old place you did because you know oh, you guys it. get together? No, and anybody who follow anyone who's really followed TNT, because I know we've got peripheral fans. We've got we've got fans that really only remember uh, "Tell No Tales" or Ten Thousand Lovers" or maybe a couple songs off Intuition," and that's kind of their view of TNT. But uh, and maybe maybe a little bit from "Nights of the New Thunder." So those, those those first three records are mostly what I'd say the majority of, of TNT fans, or maybe at least fifty percent of them, are all about those three records. But if you really, if, if the other 50%, or maybe it's, I don't know what the percentage is, they know that we've been recording and writing a lot of other music uh, since those days, and every album's different. And as we evolve and as we grow, we put out different kinds of music, and, and um, that's what we probably will continue to do. And I think that people who really know the band, yeah, probably a lot of them are frustrated that we don't go back to that original style and try to duplicate what we did. I think the closest we came was My Religion, which is my personal favorite record that we've ever done. That came out in 2004. Unfortunately, it didn't get a lot of attention in the U.S., but it did really well for us in Europe and Japan and um, other places. It charted quite well in, uh, in Scandinavia, and uh, I'm real proud of it. It had a lot of songs on it and a lot of good songs, and we, we spent a good amount of time, and we were very, very focused making that album. So that's my personal favorite. I highly recommend it to any TNT fan that's maybe fell off, the, you know, uh, lost us for a while. If they want to kind of, you know, get reconnected to the band, my my religion from 2004 is a good way to uh, reconnect a little bit. But we've tried a lot of things. You know, we we went in some very different directions in the late 90s. We did two albums that a lot of people were were not sure what to think of. You know, because <laughs> they were so different than what they were used to hearing from us. Um, so my religion kind of brought us back to uh, a little bit of the older style mixed with where we had gone forward with, and then we uh, came back with all the way to the sun in two thousand five, which um, which is kind of an extension of my religion. It's a little bit little bit more contemporary than my religion, but still had that classic TNT sound. Uh, where will we be today, based on what we've been writing so far? I never really know what a record is going to sound like. I know that may sound funny, but I really never know what a record's going to sound like until uh, we start to get to the mixing phase and, and until I start to hear rough, uh, more rough demos uh, or more rough mixes, rather, of what we're recording. So right now, I've mostly got to, what I've mostly got to go by is um, what we've written. 
And yeah, a lot of stuff's been recorded, but I just can't quite say yet what this record's going to sound like. Is it going to be eclectic? Very. It's, is, are there going to be songs that remind people of old school TNT? I hope, I hope enough. <laughs> you know, I hope there's enough. But no, to answer your question honestly, I never like to go back. When people say to me, why did you cut your hair? Or why do you, I grow it, I cut it, I change my image all the time. I mean, I can pull up pictures of myself from three years ago and I had a full beard and hair down to my shoulders. And now I've got short hair again. And then, you know, five years before that, it was short and then it was long. And people say to me, well, why don't you, you know, grow your hair back? Or why don't you make a record like Tell No Tales again? And I, th- I, I kind of think to myself, well, why don't you go back to your, to the wife you were married to 20 right. years ago and put and put your spandex back on or go back and put your old jeans on from 1988 or something. I mean, you know, uh, it, it, it's hard to go back in time mentally and in every other way because I don't think like I did in 1987 or 86, and uh, so my lyrics won't be the same. I, I, I would like to think they'd be a lot better because uh, I've lived a lot more life than I had at that point. Um, so, you know, yeah, I like to, I like to grow and evolve. I think sometimes one of the things that frustrates me about being in the hard rock genre is, um, ah, there just seems to be less growth rate allowed by, uh, by, by, by not just the fan base, but by the, uh, I, lo- I love, I mean, I'm a hard rock fan. I listen to hard rock. I always want I want the new ACDC album to sound like, you know, old ACDC just as much as everybody else does. But when I when I look at other forms of music, I just see the ability to to try things. Whether even in the in the pop world, I mean, you can see a lot of these new pop artists, man, they're bouncing all over the place these days trying trying different things. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, and if they're big enough, the pop fans seem to be sort of uh, allow them to experiment and try stuff. And I can even see that when I look back to Queen. When they made that first album, The Game, in 1980, everybody was like, oh my God, what are they doing? A disco album? Oh, no, you know. But sorry, looking back on it, Another One Bites the Dust was one of their biggest hits. Exactly. You know. So I like to think that we could be allowed to do that. Look, in all honesty, we 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 didn't get big enough to get that that we have any sort of uh, hall pass in that regard, we don't we don't we don't necessarily. But then again, maybe we do. Maybe the fact that we weren't big gives us more flexibility and more um, uh, you know m- more freedom. Exactly. I don't know. All right, man. Well, you know what? God, the hour flew. I, I you you have great stories, man. I want to thank you for coming on. I'm glad we got to do this. Uh, now, 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 your website is uh, TonyHarnell.com. Yeah, it's not much of a site, but what I will say about it is from that website, they can find everything. They can find my Twitter page and my Facebook you know, page, and they can also get to my online store where they can buy merchandise. So from there, and they can see tour dates. Cool. So from there, they can you know, they can find out what's going on. With cool. Me. Well, people, check it out. Go to TonyHarnell.com, T-O-N-Y-H-A-R-N-E-L-L.com. Also go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 590 episodes up there. You can email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Tony talked about Twitter. I tweet a lot. Yeah. Follow me. What's yeah, your Twitter? Follow, yeah, follow me. Follow me on Twitter too. Twitter, I, Facebook, yeah. Follow him <laughs> on Twitter. Follow everything. Follow him everything. Follow me on Twitter at coopertalk. Instagram, I'm coopertalk1 because someone else took coopertalk. And I just post a lot of just 
show promotion and stuff like that. And I post pictures of my food because my cookbook, StopTheSalt.com, go to that site. Remember when I had the heart problem? I did a cookbook, 120 low-sodium recipes. Easy to make. No pictures to intimidate you. No long of ingredients. You can get it at Amazon.com, but if you get it at StopTheSalt.com, I make more money. So get it there. So people, please go to CooperTalk.net. Email me, Cooper, at CooperTalk.net. Creative Stupidity PR. Go to TonyHarnell.com. Check out TNT. Go buy the albums because, you know, I bet he still makes a little cash if you buy the albums. And people, we all want to make some cash. So keep listening to Cooper Talk. <laughs> follow Tony. Follow out Cooper Talk. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only hips my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.